Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. Would you do me a favor? Turn to someone who's close to you and say, you know what? I really like what you're wearing today. Would you do that? Just do that. Just tell them you really like what they're wearing today. And <laughs> oh, I got to be careful. One of these days, some, I just make those up as they're coming. You can probably tell. And so one of these days, I'll probably do something that'll get me in trouble. But anyway, I like that. I like smiling a little bit, and I like it when we kind of bridge those gaps and barriers, understanding that, that it's not just one of us in our faith, right? It's us as a body of Christ in our faith. And so we enjoy doing that. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we're going to headquarter today. We're going to use this passage as a template. We, Quite frankly, we could have gone to several other encounters of Jesus along the way because what I want to do today is we've been talking about how to show our faith. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about how to talk about our faith. And uh, really the, the last couple of weeks have been to earn the right to speak into people's lives and secondly not to disqualify ourselves to being able to speak into somebody's life. Now over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how to actually talk about this thing because the whole idea of living a life of faith is not simply just to be an example, but it's to have the opportunity of talking about what the hope of our salvation is, right? And to give a reason for that hope. So that hopefully that's the idea behind that. Um, this uh, last uh, Brown City camp, just uh, about a month ago, uh, we were packing up as we were coming back from Brown City. It's my habit. I come home on Saturday. Uh, I've got weekend services, and so we just kind of, we pack it up on Saturday morning, and uh, I had my motorcycle out at camp. I do that once in a while. I didn't get to ride very much this year, but I like to go on an afternoon ride or something like that, and so me and a couple buddies will we'll take our bikes out, and it didn't happen as much this, but I was using it to go back and forth. So the only vehicle we had out at camp that both Tammy and I could ride in was, was my truck, and um, on the way home from camp, we were going to stop by the farm, which is where I, I all times keep my bike at, but it's also where I kept a trailer. I had a trailer out there, and I needed to pick up that trailer on the way home. And so I told Tammy, just meet me at the farm. We got there. I hooked up the trailer, and rather than pull my motorcycle onto the trailer, I said, well, I'm 25 minutes from home. I'm just going to enjoy the drive. I'm just going to enjoy the ride. And I said, so you go ahead and take off. I had to go do a couple of things before I could take off. And I said, I'll just meet you at home. And so I was probably five, six minutes uh, behind Tammy. And as I'm pulling up to our house on Craft Road, I'm pulling up and there's the truck sitting at the entrance of the uh, driveway. And it became very clear what was happening. Tammy was trying to back the trailer up up to the house and she she you know and it happens when you're unless you're using I grew up on a farm and I, I gotta tell you I as a kid I, I remember just going womper jawed with the trailer you know you jackknife them all the time that kind of a thing and so she was trying to back that trailer up straight and it was kind of hard to do so so when I got there the truck was sitting there at the entrance of the driveway the trailer was turned kind of kind of sideways and I knew exactly what was going on but when I went by I noticed something that really caused my heart to be troubled just a little bit. So I, I get out of the car and, and I go over. I, I had to go around, come in the second entrance, pull up, park my bike, and I go over and Tammy comes out. She goes, I can't get it. I wanted to back it up and I couldn't get it. And I said, did something happen to the truck? And she said, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. She said, I just can't get this thing straight. I go, so I walk around the truck. I get to the other side. This is what I see. 
I don't think this picture does justice to what I was looking at. If you can't tell, there is an eight-inch gash through my quarter panel, and the side is busted in. And I stood there. <laughs> and Tammy said, well, I, I don't think I did that. And some of you will know, I, I practiced, I went ahead into the future in a hundred different conversations, and I could not think of one thing I would say that would not get me in trouble. And so I, I literally, I, Tammy told me the other day, she told me, because I asked her permission, I didn't just do this, I asked her permission. And, by the way, now it's kind of funny, right? Uh, by the way, this is what makes this heartbreaking. Less than one month earlier, I had just had both quarter panels redone. They had just been repainted. Everything had just been done. All the rust was gone. Going to keep the truck till Wesley's out of college. Still keeping the truck until Wesley's out of college. But I ain't fixing that dent because it's 2500 bucks. And so I walked away and she said, you, she told me, you said, well, those things happen. Hey, I should get an applause. Come on. Because at that moment, the Holy Spirit filtered something and said, do not open your mouth. Okay, so what I want to do today is before you open your mouth and you start talking to someone about your faith, there are some things that you must do. And John chapter 4 is a tremendous example of it as Jesus is interacting with a Samaritan woman and it says in verse 1, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. He is in the Jerusalem area. He's in southern Israel. And he is going to leave. And it says that he is going to go, he is going to go back to Galilee, which is on the north side of Israel. And between the south side and the north side, there is like a kidney-shaped country called Samaria. And it says, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey. I, I underline this because, do you know, sometimes Jesus just got tired. And can I just tell you, just as a, sometimes ministry and talking to someone doesn't happen when you're you're all energetic. Sometimes it just happens and you're tired. And you really don't necessarily feel like having the conversation. And it says he was tired from the journey. He sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus asked her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. John puts that in there because a lot of Romans are reading this and they wouldn't have understood what the big deal was. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep on coming back to draw water. Well, Jesus said, Okay. I put that in there. Okay. Go call your husband and then come back. She said, Well, I I don't have a husband. I'm going to put this in here. Technically. Jesus said, well, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're now with is not your husband, so what you said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. I love how she changes the subject, by the way. I love how our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must uh, worship is Jerusalem. She is begging him to get into an argument. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Then the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you, am he. Just then, his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want with her, or why were you talking with her? Now, I got to tell you, John 4, we could headquarter in John 4, we could spend a month in this passage and just look at incredible lessons. We could look at living water. We We could talk about the significance of what salvation, that it's as living water, or the work of the Spirit of God in bringing that constant flow of the Spirit of God, that living water in our life. We could talk about what true worship really looks like. We, there's a lot of things we could hit. But what I want you to see is the model that what started off as a confrontational encounter became very quickly an opportunity for Christ to show mercy, grace, and what salvation really is to a woman that really he should not have been speaking to. In fact, what's interesting is that if you look through the the different encounters with Jesus into the life of individuals, you'll find that Jesus was one who would interact with some of the most awkward, socially outcast individuals, and yet they seemed to love him. They were attracted to him. And and, in fact, can I just say, they didn't like the Pharisees. They didn't like the, the church, so to speak, and that really follows through today. Why is it that people are really open 
to talk about Jesus. Because I'm just going to tell you, people are really open to talk about Jesus. But they don't want to talk about your church. They don't really want, in fact, I will hear this so often as I don't need other people to tell me how to follow God. I don't need the church in order for me to worship God. And by the way, technically that's true, right? So why is that? Why is it that, that people seem to be attracted to Jesus and yet have, have this issue with Christians? Well, maybe it's because we need to model the way Jesus interacts with people. And so this is not profound stuff today. Let me put it this way. It is simple, but it's very hard. And I would say this, it is simple, but not simplistic. To me, it is profound. And the first thing that has to happen before you ever open your mouth is a heart change. You gotta love people. Jesus loved people, number one. Can I see it up there? Number one, it just, you gotta love people before you ever open your mouth. I love what it says in this passage. Jesus had to go through Samaria, and I love John, but can I just tell you something? No, he did not. Jesus did not have to walk through Samaria because most Jews didn't walk through Samaria. Now, John's not telling a lie. John is telling you a heartbeat. There was something in Jesus that had to go through Samaria because because generally coming from the south, going to the north, Jews did not, unless they absolutely had to, they would not travel through Samaria. So they would go out of their way to go around Samaria because Samaritans were a disdain in the hearts of the Jewish people. Give you a little bit of background on it without going too much in depth. is during the Babylonian exile, those who were true Jews continued to intermarry only with Jews. But one of the things that the Babylonians do is they kind of encourage you to lose your culture. It started with the Assyrian, then obviously the Babylonian in there as well. But one of the things they tried to encourage you to do was to intermarry with other groups because if they could get two cultures to intermarry, you would lose your cultural identity. So what would happen is you not only would lose your culture, but you would also dilute your theology. You would dilute your belief in God because you're bringing different gods into the situation. So when the Babylonian captivity was over and the Jews began to come back um, uh, through, through the three uh, uh, deportations of, of uh, the Persian uh, 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 emperor, when they started to be able to be released and coming back, they took great... Um, pride and great effort to make sure that the only people who were considered true Jews were ones who could prove that they had not intermarried into the other cultures. The Samaritans were the individuals who had married into other cultures, and in the minds of the Jews, they were they were dirty. They were half-breeds. They were not pure, and because of that, they had disdain for them. And by the way, the Samaritans, if you remember Nehemiah, <laughs> Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, you remember that? You had individuals who were, who were kind of yelling at him from the sidelines. Samaritans. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the ones who were there yelling at him. They didn't like Jews anymore because they knew Jews thought so lowly of them. So you put that into context, and so when he shows up, the first thing she says to him after he asks her for a drink of water is, really? You're asking me? I am a Samaritan woman, and you're asking me for a drink? 
So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's because there was something in him that had to go to those who didn't know him. Matthew chapter 9, it says this. It's in your notes. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Would you read that phrase with me? He had compassion on them. Compassion means that I love someone inwardly enough that I do something outwardly. Did you catch that? I love someone enough to engage. I love someone enough to do something about it. Talk is cheap. John says don't just love with words, but love with deeds. Do something. Just now as I'm looking at that on my little screen back there, I'm thinking, could they put my name in there? Phil had compassion on them. Bruce had compassion on them. Tim had compassion on them. Could they put your name in there? That you're a person who actually loves people enough to do something about it. Because Jesus, Jesus loved the people who had spiritual questions. And he wasn't threatened by them. Nicodemus. Jesus loved the woman who had a questionable background. The adulterous woman. The woman who anointed his feet. The Samaritan woman. Jesus loved people who had diseases that would make you gag. The people that the curse of God was on them. People with leprosy. People who were lame. People who couldn't see. People who everybody else had disdain for. Jesus just loved them. And can I just suggest to you something? No matter what you say and no matter what your face says, people, they know how you feel about them. They can tell if you have disdain for them. They can tell how you feel about them. And so that's why I just say that we're going to have an opportunity to actually tell when we actually love people. I can tell you stories over the years specifically how God at key times in my life just broke my heart and convicted me. And it wasn't because of a particular passage of Scripture. It wasn't because of a message that was preached. And it wasn't because of a cultural discussion. But the Spirit of God in a moment just began to tag me that I had a very unhealthy view of different individuals and he just said you know what you'll never have the opportunity to minister into their life because you have a bitterness a hatred and an unhealthy view of them it starts there by the way how do i change that well ask god to help you with that and it can just start with simply god i want to have the same heart you have for people would you break my heart for those people actually begin to pray for people, it's amazing how your disdain level goes down. Rather than criticize, rather than judge. That way, that doesn't say that sin isn't wrong. That doesn't mean to, but Jesus had a way of seeing sin without being condemning. It just, it's just how he able, able to do it. It's because he loved people. Number two, we got to see them differently. We got to work on our eyes. 
And by seeing them differently, it means we see them for who they are and who God wants them to be. Now, I want you to see this passage as we begin to interact here because there, there becomes this interaction. I, was, I came across a story this last week um, of a woman. Uh, her name was Elizabeth Gibson. In 2007, Elizabeth did something phenomenal. She had the day that all of us want to have. Um, she got up. She lived in New York. She got up in her New York apartment. She was leaving. She was going every day. She'd go down. She'd get her coffee, and she'd go off to her business for the day. And as she was walking out of her building, she noticed there was a pile of garbage on the street because street garbage people were coming, and they're picking it up. And as she looked over, she saw a cheap paint, uh, uh, like a frame, and she saw a painting in it. And as she looked at it a little bit, she, 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 um, she, she, she's not above, she said, I wasn't above being a dumpster diver. Hey, real quick, how many of you are dumpster divers? Let me just do it real fun here. Yeah, I've, I've got a few things. I've got a few things. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've picked up a couple, probably from your house, you know, it's probably. <laughs> I can't think of what it is right now. I'm pretty sure the ladder I just gave Wesley for his room, oh, it was a dumpster dive, I'm pretty sure. He probably doesn't want to step on that third rung, but that's a whole nother thing, you know. She looked over, she saw a painting, and she saw that it was a really cheap frame, but she, she kind of liked the colors. She couldn't tell what it was. In fact, even after she got it, she couldn't tell what it was. It was kind of dirty, kind of grimy, had a cheap frame, but she said the colors were powerful. And so she went ahead and she grabbed it, and it was huge. She, it was actually, she said it was 50-some inches by 30-some inches, which in New York, your apartments are so small. She goes, I don't know what I'm going to do with this thing. She grabbed it, turns out. It is by a celebrated Mexican um, painter. It actually was a known work. I don't know the. I, I'm not. I don't know Spanish, so for me to try to say it for you would. But it just meant three persons. That's what. It, that's what the title meant. Um, <laughs> went up for auction for a million dollars at Sotheby's, 2007. How many think that's a pretty good day? That's a pretty good day. That's why I dumpster dive. <laughs> that's, because I'm guaranteed one of these days I'm going to find one. Uh, what everybody else thought was trash. By the way, it was under an FBI investigation. It had been stolen 20 years earlier. They actually were looking for this painting, but I, I don't know how that all worked out. But it went to Sotheby's and it was up for an auction estimate of a million dollars. Isn't it interesting what everybody else saw as junk, as grime, as something that was worthless turned out to be a masterpiece? And that, in a nutshell, describes how there are two different views of how you could see the Samaritan woman. In fact, there are two different views of how you can see yourself. There are two different views of how you can see everybody in your life. The first, the first way we look at people is the way that, i got to be honest with you, I tend to look at people, and that's messy. I look at the messes. I'm a fixer. I'm a pastor. I always look, okay, what is this person? I, I got to admit it. I, I don't think I'm overly critical. Some would disagree with me, but I do have a critical eye. I notice the things that need to be cleaned. I notice the things. It's kind of the nature of what I do. Um, I pay attention to stuff. I'm, it's hard for me at times not to pay attention to that which is not quite right because that, I, I kind of feel like the buck stops here, and so I got I to gotta kind of pay attention to that stuff. And as you look at the Samaritan woman, there's a lot of mess there. She's, number one, she's a woman. And, and I know that that sounds horrible, but in that culture, that is exactly what they thought. 
There's a reason, she said, and you are asking me, a Samaritan woman, to get you a drink? The disciples, I read verse 27 for a reason. When they came back, they could not believe he was talking to what? A woman. Because women did not have value in that society. By the way, can I just tell you, Jesus liberated not just those caught in sin. Jesus gave liberation to an entire gender because he saw value. You notice how many of his disciples that there were women or those who were followers? In the early church, women had ministry. Women were engaged in what was taking place. He calls on them and says, hey, they're partners in the harvest field. Jesus had this whole view. Why? Because Paul says he doesn't see Jew or Gentile or free or slave or male or female. Galatians was at chapter 2, chapter 3. He says, I, that's not in the kingdom. We simply are. And so this woman, she knew that in that culture she had no value. She was a Samaritan, which I already explained. She is a half-breed in the eyes of the Jews. She is a woman with a shameful secret. This woman had been with five men as her husbands, and she's on her sixth. Even in that culture, that's a lot. Jesus could have looked at her and just saw the mess. I'll go further. It's one thing when other people see you as being messy. It's another thing when you start to believe those things about yourself. I think the reason she had an attitude with Jesus is because she believed the same junk about herself that everybody else believed about her. There are some of you that are here this morning that the people in your life that God wants you most to speak into your life, the only thing you can see is their addiction. And I understand addiction. I have worked with more people with addictions and bondage. It is so discouraging. Can I just tell you, it is discouraging. Sometimes you're Jesus, you're tired. The people you see are the people who have personality issues. The people you see are the people who are in, 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 involved in some relationships. And you're going, what in the world? All you see is the mess. Some of you are here this morning, I believe with all my heart, you've stayed distant from the Lord because you believe about yourself. You're only a mess. And the only thing you can see are the things that everybody else has said about you. Can I give you the second view? You're the masterpiece. Jesus did not look at people as messes. He looked at them as masterpieces. And if they're not masterpieces, they were at least potential masterpieces. This begins to change every encounter you see in the Gospels. Jesus goes into the home of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Right? He's a tax collector. This guy has an issue. Nobody likes him. <laughs> tax collectors don't like tax collectors. They got lots of money. Nobody likes him. 
And so what does Jesus do when he comes into contact with this tax collector, this wee little man? I always envision it as kind of like this. And, you know, I'm a Notre Dame fan, so I always think about the size of a leprechaun. That's what I always think of, you know. And he runs up there, and he's kind of like, hey, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Now, you may think that's rude. I'll guarantee that changed Zacchaeus' life. Nobody comes to his house. He's a tax collector. Why? Because Jesus saw the potential masterpiece, not the mess that stood in front of him. The adulterous woman, John chapter 8, this woman's caught in adultery. Don't know how that happened. That's embarrassing. She's, got, she's down on the ground, and I guarantee she's, not, she's thinking about herself exactly what every other person in that courtyard is thinking about herself. I am worthless. I am a mess. Jesus says, hey, where are your condemners? Nobody else is condemning you? Well, then neither do I. Go leave your life of sin. Why? Because he said, because you don't have to live this way. Can I just tell you, Jesus always can, can tell people to leave their life of sin because he sees the potential masterpiece. Can I just tell you, there are some right now that are here that there's stuff that's in your life and you know it shouldn't be in your life. And Jesus looks at you and he's not just looking at the mess. He says, can I tell you, I have something better for you. I have a future for you that will change your life. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to be this person. To the person, I love this, to Simon the leper, he goes into Simon the leper's home. While he's there, a, a sinful woman comes in and begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And I know why. Because she's thinking, if he'll hang out with Simon a leper, maybe it's okay if I come and I worship him. There is something powerful when we begin to see not what is, but what God can do. When we see what not is, and I get it, I am not Pollyanna. I have never been called Pollyanna. I see reality. But when we begin to get a vision for a fact, can I just tell you something? Every one of you in one capacity or another was a mess. And I'm going to tell you, if you're in Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you a definition of who you are today. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. I gave you the New Living Translation, but you can look at it in any version. Here's what it says. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done so that no one can boast about it. For we are God's what? masterpiece we're God's masterpiece the NIV says we are God's workmanship it means artistry on display Bob I'm bummed out because I forgot to grab one of your ducks I was going to grab one of your ducks and bring it out here and have it be right on my stool and I forgot to do it I have a special if you don't know this about Pastor Bob this guy is a renaissance man. I think this guy can do I, anything he does. I have such high regard for him. And uh, I have, because uh, we, I have what's called the duck of the month club, which means I, we just rotate one of Bob's ducks. Bob, Bruce has got one. Um, little known secret. I've had that duck for almost a year now. <laughs> I, it, it doesn't rotate. I love that duck, you know. And I have a shelf and I have a light that was built just so it would shine on that. And there's a reason for it. I just think that is art on display. 
when God looks at your life, if you ever want to know how God thinks about you, that's what you were, but you're now his workmanship on display. You're a masterpiece. You ever wonder what God's future for you could look like? You are his masterpiece on display. And can I tell you, when you see people that way, it changes everything before you open your mouth. Number, number three, before you ever open your mouth, before you ever open your mouth, we've got to listen to them. You've got to open your ears. This is a lot of work, isn't it? It really doesn't have to take as long as this message is taking. Look what happens. Jesus begins to interact with her, and, he, and she says, would you really? Now, he caught her disdain. He caught her attitude. Then he begins to say, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I'm not going to read through all that. I'm going to encourage you to do so. But here's what you see happening. Jesus starts where the woman's at, he discerns what is going on in her life, and then he begins to give direction and spiritual guidance based upon what her questions are, not upon what he wanted to make sure she knew. I, I want to make sure you catch this, because when you're working with individuals, number one, you got to listen to the Holy Spirit. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit, and if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit, he will give you a discernment as to where people are at. Philip, when he worked with the Ethiopian eunuch, was led by the Spirit, and then he went and he spoke with the Ethiopian eunuch, and the first thing he did was ask questions. Ask questions. Number two, listen to them. Don't presume that you know what they need until you know what they need. I remember one time I was working with a guy around an altar, and that's probably been about 16 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, and it was a little bit of a minor miracle that this guy, well, it was a big miracle. This guy, I had been praying for this guy, I had been praying for this guy. I don't remember what the context of it was. All I remember is that he went to the altar, and when he went to the altar, I'm like, whoa, this is a big deal. And I knew exactly what it was all about. I remember when I got up there and I began, to, I began to talk to him. My first question when I work with people around the altar is, it's almost always this. What's the Lord speaking to you about? That's really good, by the way, because the Lord was not speaking to him about anything near what I thought the Lord should be speaking to him about. And in a moment, I went up there presuming one thing, and I walked away. We prayed with him in a whole different way. By the way, the Lord did get a hold of his life. He did turn his life over to Christ. It just wasn't on that particular night. He was working, but we started where he was at. Can I just encourage you? We don't have to fit people into our little box of what we think they need. I love the four spiritual laws. Probably we'll teach it next week. Next week, I'm going to give you different ways that you can actually share the message of the gospel with people. But can I just tell you, that may not be where they're at. That might not be what they're asking. When I, uh, when I used to live uh, and go to school in um, uh, Bloomington, Indiana, I went through Kokomo every time I'd go back and forth. And there was a great big sign that was... Uh, on a billboard there, and I was not being, I don't think I was being sacrilegious. I just see things as being funny. And so sometimes I have a little bit of spiritual irreverence because I, I just, I see things and it just strikes me as funny. It just strikes me as funny. And uh, so I had a, a girl that was with me. She was a friend of mine and we would drive back and forth. I was the only one that had a car. And so when we went through town, there was a big uh, billboard that said, Jesus is the answer. And I just, I just quickly said to her, huh, wonder what the question is. 
And she thought it was funny, and she started laughing and such, and obviously none of you do, but I'm hilarious, and I just believe it. I know the answer to that question. Jesus is the answer, and I'll tell you what he's the answer to. Whatever the deepest heart's desire of your life is, he's the answer. To the one that is broken, he is the one who can mend. To the one that is devastated, he is the one who is your strength. To the one who spiritually is afraid of death, he is the certainty of eternity. To the one who is in shame, he is the forgiveness of sins. To the one who is guilty, he is the one who is the guilt freer. To the one who is depressed, he is your hope, he is your sustenance, and he is your reason for living. To the one who is sick, he is the healer and the sustainer. And by the way, every single one of those is biblical. You and I know that the deepest spiritual need, the deepest need in anyone's life is spiritual. It's the deepest need. But sometimes we simply have to meet people where they are before Jesus is able to bring them to where he wants them to be. Does that make sense? Maybe the biggest need in your neighbor's life is not that day. Now, I get it. I know what the ultimate goal is. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is probably going to take a little more investment than one time. There's nothing wrong with quick interaction with people where you're able to speak with them. But can I tell you, generally speaking, that is not how people come to Christ. It comes from loving them, seeing them as God sees them, listening to them. And then, by the way, number four, now you can open your mouth. And Sometimes we're so afraid to do that, right? Sometimes we're afraid to do that. Sherry, can I just have you come and begin to play? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. I want to read, I want to read a passage of Scripture because sometimes we're so insecure because we think, well, this person has lots of money and I don't have a lot and I don't know how to speak to people with money or this person's really solid in business and he's an expert or she's an expert and I, I don't really feel like I'm a person who, you know, is highly educated or this person knows. And, you know, I learned a long time ago that as a believer in Christ, no matter what the rest of the world have going for them, no matter what, no matter what the people in your rows have going for them, every one of us needs Jesus. When Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper, people are looking at disdain at the woman who's coming and weeping over Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, Hey, Simon, can I ask you a question? Two broke people owed a debt. 
One owed 50 bucks and the other one owed 500 bucks. It was actually more than that. One owed two months' wages. Another one owed two years' wages. But neither one had the ability to pay the debt. So the guy they owed it to forgave them both. Which one of those two people that was forgiven do you think will love that guy more? And he said, well, Jesus, I presume it'll be the one who owed the most. He said, you speak wisely, Simon. Can I tell you something? We're all broke. Some are just broker than others. Broke isn't just not having any money. Broke is having no money. I mean, we've all had no money, right? I was in college. I didn't have any money. What's worse than not having any money? It's having no money and being in debt. Spiritually speaking, none of us have any money. Every one of us is in debt. None of us can pay. We all should be grateful and none of us should look at people more broke than us and think we have anything on them. Broke is still broke. We should all be celebrating that he's loved us enough to forgive us of our debt. Amen? And when you understand that, that takes all the arrogance out of the discussion. It just has a, a heart of gratitude that says, can I tell you about what Jesus has done for me? Father, you are such a gracious God, and uh, I have a lot of faults. But the one thing you have graciously reminded me of over and over and over again for these last 33 years is just how broke I am. That I am where I am because of you, plain and simple. But I also thank you that, Lord, you have deemed it in such a way that those that are here that are called by your name, that we are your children, we now have your authority, and we know with certainty where we're headed, when we have that kind of certainty, it gives us all kinds of confidence to be able to tell others about how much Jesus has done for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart there are some of us that are here today that you need to probably give us a heart change toward a particular person or a particular group of people. Father, there's probably a few folks in our life that rather than seeing the messy, we need to look at the potential masterpiece. You know, I actually believe there are some that are here right now that you have stayed away from Christ. You come to church. 
there's something you're looking for. You're like that guy that came to me one time and said, I feel like I'm on the outside of a store looking in through a window. He said, I so deeply want, and you've stayed a little bit distant because you've had, you've bought the lies of the enemy about who you are. Can I tell you, God sees you. Yes, yes, he sees that we have, we have fallen short, but he has the answer and wants in us. He wants to do that masterpiece work through his grace. And you can ask him right now. Lord, I so deeply want personally to look like Jesus to the people in my life. Would you make us a body of Christ full of people who look, who smell, who represent you into our world. Thanks, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.